2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta-based author Romal Tune didn't grow up with his dad. And when Tune reconnected with him later in life, he yearned for more. The words, I wish my dad begged to be completed as a sentence, and eventually became a book co-authored by tune with his son, Jordan. The Power of Vulnerable Conversations Between Fathers and Sons, later this hour. Plus, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment today features the late, great pianist Ramsey Lewis. And... We'll hear about Pop-Up Magazine's unique multimedia storytelling experience coming to the Buckhead Theater first. Rebecca and Megan Lovell are the multifaceted musicians of the duo Larkin Poe. Their style is soulful, gritty, and rooted in Southern heritage. Originally from Atlanta, now based in Nashville, the Lovell sisters are descendants of the literary genius Edgar Allan Poe. Larkin Poe has a new album called Blood Harmony. The duo joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much for having us back. It's lovely to hear you. Thank you.
2: Oh, great to have you. It's been a minute. So before we get into your music, would you explain how you discovered the family connection to the great writer Edgar Allan
3: Poe? So we were lucky enough to have a family genealogist. Her name's Linda Cinco, and she's on our dad's side of the family. And this would have been when my sister and I were 15, 16, 16, 17 years old. And we went to a family reunion and Linda had spent a lot of time mapping out the family tree and had found the connection. And by that point, my sister and I were already big fans of Poe. So to be able to have some sort of a connection in the flesh and blood to, to already an existing hero was really exciting. So whenever we started the band, and we were trying to figure out what we wanted to call our group together we we definitely wanted to pick a name that had some family significance and given the poe connection we thought that naming the band after our great 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 grandfather who was the closest connection to edgar allan that felt like the right move
2: tell us a bit please about your musical upbringing
4: We started out playing classical violin as kids. Um, That was our first introduction to learning the language of of music. So we did Suzuki lesson in violin and then later in piano. But we were introduced to roots music in our early teens. And that's when our true passion began for for music. And we were so inspired by the idea of improvisation and being able to write our own songs. And so we we quit our classical lessons and and began playing roots music. The whole time we grew up listening to a lot of classic rock and Southern rock. So, you know, we wanted to kind of work that that side of ourselves as well.
2: Mm. Now you have famous company and bands founded by siblings, the Beach Boys, Almond Brothers, and Van Halen come to mind. How does being sisters add to your band's success and your professional lives?
3: I feel that our sisterhood, it cuts both ways, you know. The fact that we have so much shared experience at this point in our lives, you know, we're both in our early 30s now and we've been making music together for about 15 years and obviously growing up with one another gives us a real innate understanding of one another as individuals, both personally and musically which i think is such such a gift in the way that we communicate through our music we're able to have a lot of non-verbal communication when we're playing we can look at each other and just sort of catch a wave which i think is really magical and oftentimes it's it's the intangible i think that 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 really drives us when we're creating together it's very exciting it's really fun and passionate between the two of us but then i think it has required a lot of additional work on our family connection to ensure that our relationship stays healthy because you do hear you know so many horror stories of sibling bands imploding or having unhealthy relationships and i can see how you would reach that point it's it's not an easy way to make a living. And there's a lot of pressures that are being placed and a lot of strain and weight placed on the relationship. Yeah. But between the two of us, we we have definitely spent a lot of time building and trying to create more trust and more understanding. And we are very careful about how we speak to one another and the respect and, and really trying to overcome some of the childhood traumas and baggage that exists such that we can have longevity.
2: That is admirable. What's the story behind the title of your new album Blood Harmony?
4: You know, some of our earliest memories in music stem from our, our mother. She drove us to our our lessons and she also sang harmonies with her siblings and so she taught us siblings how to sing harmonies. So we would be sitting at the sitting at the piano and she would be teaching us how to sing and that's, that's really precious to us. And there is a feeling that, that sibling harmonies are passed down in the blood and there's kind of nothing like being able to, to sing with your family. So we wanted that to be well represented in, in the title track of the newest album because singing together and you know playing together as siblings is really important. So Blood Harmony felt like a really good name for this album.
3: Down to me, always with me, near my heart beating rhythm with the melody. More than flesh, more than bone. When you see, I don't sing alone.
2: I I read that. Your single, Bad Spell, is in response to Screaming Jay Hawkins' song, I Put a Spell on You. Do tell us more about it.
3: <laughs> I am a huge Screaming J. Hawkins fan. And both my sister and I, in the last, I would say, six, seven years, have dedicated ourselves to being students of the blues, which has been one of the biggest adventures of my life to date, being able to devote a lot of time to researching and learning and understanding where American music has come from. And of course, artists like and Jay Hawkins or Skip James or Sun House or, you know, Slim Harpo, Mississippi, Fred McDowell, these are all true pioneers who were laying the foundation upon which all of American music and from what I can understand, American culture has been built so, to be able to write a song that speaks to the inspiration that I feel from specifically I put a spell on you, which if you have not heard that recording, you definitely the listeners at large need to cue it up and listen because it'll it'll raise the hairs in the back of your neck. And and I did write bad spell as a kind of a rock and roll female response to I put a spell on you. And and it just comes from a big place of love and respect. Boy, you cast a bad spell. A bad spell over me You got me ringing like a doorbell You got me buzzing like a yellow bee Boy, you cast a bad spell A bad spell over me And when I catch you, you're gonna catch hell I'ma get you in the first degree Oh, it's a...
2: Rebecca, your husband, musician Tyler Bryant, co-produced this album. What was it like having him involved in the creation of Blood Harmony?
3: It was a really great experience. You know, given that Megan and I make music together as family, to be able to have, you know, a larger circle of family involved in the music making is definitely something that we aspired to have within our family group from a very young age. And Tyler is an incredible musician and a very highly evolved man. Like I think having married a very strong and opinionated woman, uh, not to mention having a very strong and opinionated sister-in-law, his ability <laughs> to come into the studio and be supportive and you know, put his two cents in and also keep his two cents out if he felt that was appropriate. It felt really, really good. You know, our connection as sisters making music is so strong. As I spoke earlier, you know, a lot of nonverbal, and we've really worked out a lot of the kinks in our working relationship over having self-produced a lot of our albums since 2017. So Megan and I really took a leap of faith in in opening up the conversation to Tyler. And he he was so respectful and so creative and joyful. He he really puts his heart and soul into music and to be able to to kind of borrow some of that positive energy for our own project was, was really wonderful. And I think in hindsight, we realized like, oh, my goodness, this could have gone very badly. <laughs> but we're very lucky that it really went great. And we had a, a lot of fun together, the three of us, you know, making this album.
2: From what you've been telling me, it sounds like the three of you and maybe your mom could be give seminars on family business, or at least music as a family (laughs) business. I don't think this is the norm.
4: It takes a lot of hard work. And at this point, several decades of practice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Another song on this album, I love the title, is Georgia Off My Mind. (laughs) So as not to be confused with Ray Charles, what's the story behind this song? It's terrific.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course, I was trying to be clever and piggybacking off of Ray Charles' classic. And Megan and I were actually born in Tennessee. We were born in Knoxville. But when we were toddlers, our folks moved us to Georgia. And so naturally, we, we identify as Georgia Peaches. <laughs> About... Seven years ago, coming into you know proper adulthood, figuring out where we wanted to put roots down, we made the decision to move back to Music City, to Tennessee. And it was a very emotional decision, you know, to, to cross that state line because we had of course spent so much time in Nashville over the years. But to venture from our comfort zone of you know Northern Georgia in the mountains and having spent a lot of time in Atlanta, and to sort of leap into the unknown of moving to a city where we didn't have as many friends, we didn't have as much family. It was a transitional season. It was that, you know, one foot in the past, one foot stepping into the future. And I think just being aware of that emotional transition really inspired me to, to write a song dedicated to that, the faith, the leap of faith, uh, you know, story that we we all can experience in different ways. And and then naturally, just being able to shout out Georgia and Coca Cola and all the good stuff that we identify with growing up in Georgia just feels good. It feels right. I hate the way you look, getting smaller in my view.
2: to be on the road again touring
4: it feels fantastic and we've had the opportunity to do some really amazing touring this year from a seven-week headline european tour and then festivals over in europe and then all this fall we've been out with willie nelson on the outlaw tour so we feel we feel super lucky to have gotten to meet some incredible people, you know, seeing Willie Nelson play every night and getting to in the night with him on stage has been quite a rush.
2: Yeah, I would say the double meaning for on the road again. What is it like (laughs) performing with some of those legends on the Outlaw Music Festival tour?
3: As Megan said, we just feel so lucky. There's a lot of gratitude to be able to take our craft out on the road and be in the room, or I guess more specifically to be on the stage in and around legends, true legends and titans of the industry and people like Willie Nelson, who have created a career based on their integrity and their ability to perform and the strength of their songs and being charismatic. We take so much from those experiences. We're able to really you know, siphon off experience secondhand
2: Rebecca, and Megan Lavelle of the Grammy-nominated band Larkin Poe. Their new album, Blood Harmony, is out now, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, author Romald Tune explores vulnerability in fatherhood with his new book, I wish my dad, amplifying Atlanta, this is W-A-B-E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta-based author and social entrepreneur Romal Tune didn't grow up with his dad. When Tune reconnected with him later in life, he yearned for more and wondered how many other men had unfinished business with their fathers. The words, I wish my dad, begged to be completed as a sentence, and eventually became a book co-authored by Tune with his son, Jordan. Ramal Tune joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. There are two introductions to this book. What does each convey?
0: Yeah, I think one conveys my heart as it relates to the challenges with my dad, the challenges with my son and I, and why I thought this was an important book to write, because of those dynamics, as well as trying to invite other men, even parents in general, into a conversation about how we love our children better.
2: Mm -hmm. Would you describe the layout of the book?
0: Yeah, so there are the two introductions, one from me and one from my son, Jordan, and he tells his story of our relationship and what he desired and his hopes for readers. After that, uh, we jump right in to the stories of each man in the book. There are 17 men, and each chapter is actually titled after some of the dynamics in their relationships with their father's where they sought deeper connection and share what love would have looked like. So readers are invited into the room for these conversations and interviews as these men share their stories.
2: Hmm. How did you go about selecting the men whose stories are featured in I Wish My Dad?
0: So in thinking about the men for the book, and the friendships that I have with uh, people in different parts of the country, I wanted to identify men from various ages and social locations, economic backgrounds, to see if my premise was correct in that the needs for love, affection, and time are pretty much universal in terms of what children, sons, and daughters even need from their fathers. And uh, after having these conversations, that was actually the case, that no matter where you grew up, and what the economics were, there were many similarities around the desire for love and affection uh, that looked very much the same. And based on how a number of my friends show up in the world, I knew there was an interesting backstory that and how they show up in the world has been impacted by who shaped them and I'm one of those persons being their fathers.
2: Mm-hmm. You write about the importance of naming what's needed, of saying it out loud. How does speaking the words or finishing the sentence, I wish, lead to healing?
0: Yeah, I mean, in asking the question and having people reflect on it, it requires that you look back in your story and think about moments in your life where you wished a parent had shown up differently to make you feel safe, to make you feel loved or heard. And so in completing the sentence, I wish my dad, the healing part of it is giving voice to not only what a person needed then, But it also uh, reflects what you still need now as it relates to feeling loved and heard and valued and cared for. And so the question and, and responding to the reflection begins the process of healing by giving voice to what a person needs.
2: Would you give us some examples? I realize you can't give everyone, but just a few examples from the book.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the very first chapter, and it's interesting after people read it, they're like, wow, you. where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, chapter one is, I wish my dad didn't silence my voice. Even though Ernest and his dad had an absolutely amazing relationship, that dynamic of having a voice showed up. Then there's, I wish my dad allowed me to share my feelings. I wish my dad loved my mom more. I wish my dad didn't abandon me. I wish my dad took care of himself, and it goes on and on from there. And then after responding to those reflections, each man begins to elaborate and share the story behind their wish.
2: The chapters in I Wish My Dad contain stories with universal messages, as you mentioned. And there is a wide array of men from different backgrounds, especially different professional and socioeconomic backgrounds. Yet the book also feels specific to people of color. Did you set out to present a BIPOC perspective, thinking about Michael Ray's and Joe's stories?
0: Yes. So I knew that cultural difference would show up and how prominent the impact of cultural dynamics and their dad's upbringing would influence how they raised their children. I was surprised at how forward the men were with talking about the challenges their dads were dealing with. And I found that interesting because the book isn't all Black men. There's a one Puerto Rican gentleman and several white men. And the differences in their stories is that Many of the African-Americans, their stories included the impact of racial difference and at the time that their dads were growing up and how those challenges influenced how they raised their children. But you didn't hear that in the other stories really at all because of their dynamics and the issues around culture didn't really exist for them.
2: Although the man from a Lebanese background feared prejudice or being ostracized by his family for the woman he
0: loved. Yes, and his story was really profound in that regard, in how he had to hide his love for his mom because of cultural difference and just how much that impacted his life and the upbringing of children Uh, in that type of dynamic. And that was one of the hard stories to read, because I could hear his sadness, even as he told the story.
2: Ramal, in what ways has self-consciousness about strength and masculinity contributed to problems between fathers and
0: sons? Oh, wow. I mean, I think being self-conscious has had has at times a significant impact because as you will see in these stories, many of the fathers are raising their children through the lens of their own journey and through the lens of how they believe they will be perceived based on how their sons show up in the world. And so in many of the cases, uh, the dads are passing down ways of being to their sons that they assumed that they would need in order to be okay in the world. And the reality is that, in many ways, what they were passing down were not the skills that were going to be required in order for their sons to thrive in the world.
2: And how does that relate to masculinity in particular?
0: Yeah, as you see in these stories, you know, I wish my dad shows how ideas of masculinity and what are typically tied to strength, courage, working hard and working incessantly, providing for a family and holding one's emotions and keeping them inside as a sense of being a strong man. And what these stories convey is that these young men wanted their dads to live a more integrated life. And that as they worked and did all of these other things that they also were able to show their humanity and share their feelings, their their fears, their hopes, their dreams to be courageous enough and strong enough to say, I love you and uh, to be affectionate enough to hug their children more. And so ideas of masculinity really show up in this book in ways that challenge fathers and, and parents overall to be more affectionate with their children and to express love more often.
2: If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author Romal Tu. The book concludes with your own father-to-son conversation and your son Jordan's conversation with you. They are very candid conversations, and you own up to bad behavior, Ramon, selfishness and, quoting you here, having a toxic ego. Was Jordan in any way reluctant to take part in the conversation, knowing that it would be published?
0: I think that for Jordan, his concern wasn't so much that he worried about it would be public. Oddly enough, or I now get it, his concern was not wanting to hurt my feelings. And that shows up in the interview very early on when he was trying to be vague about different situations in our home. And I had to pause the interview and say to him, Jordan, you don't have to be afraid to say what you need to say. I know who I was and I know I wasn't a good man. It's okay to say it because I've been doing the work on myself. I've been in therapy for over a decade. And a part of that process is owning who you were then in order to free yourself up to be who you're and really meant to be in the world. And so, and as much as it hurt to hear some of the things, they were true. And the desire to have the conversation with him was less about me and entirely about freeing my son from carrying all of those memories in silence.
2: So I, I'm trying to visualize... Were you two in a recording
0: studio or? Yeah, no, we were at my home in my home office. There are these two high back burgundy chairs with a glass coffee table in between them. On that table, after the first few interviews, I began to sit Kleenex on it because every man cried and my son and I cried as well. So my son at the time was a student at Morehouse College. He graduated in May. And when I asked him to do the interview, it was right before my birthday. And he asked what I wanted for my birthday. And my request was for the interview. At that moment, he asked, are you sure you want to do this? And that's when I told him, I think we need to. And perhaps at that time, he didn't understand what I meant by we need to. Because what I was really saying underneath that was, I want to give you the opportunity to have voice for what you've experienced, to name how it hurt you because I don't want you to carry this into your adult life and in any way repeat the mistakes that I made. So we sat in my home office and had the conversation.
2: Has your relationship or your interaction with Jordan changed in the months since?
0: Immediately after, he said that he was fatigued, as was I. But he said over the course of the next few days, he began to feel lighter. and. Since then, we have continued to have conversations. I believe healing is a journey and it doesn't happen in one conversation. But our conversations have certainly been more open and he brings into it uh, his life, not just you know his goals, but how he's feeling about different situations in life. And I'm able to show up differently as well. So it has put us on a new journey that I think as parents with adult children, are on a journey of healing we find ourselves as parents wanting to accelerate that process but have to realize that we don't have control over the pace at which our children heal their stories of what was missing and figure out together what that relationship looks like now now that he's an adult
2: atlanta author romal Tune. More information about his new book, I Wish My Dad, The Power of Vulnerable Conversations Between Fathers and Sons, is on our website, WABE.orgslash city citylights. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978. As host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is
5: H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Thank you very much for inviting me on the program. Glad to be here because I have the opportunity now that you've given me to talk about someone who I admire very much in this business called jazz, but yet he was a great classical pianist also passed away, and left a lot of jazz recordings here, a lot of hit recordings. And because of his success, he was not arrogant. He, he didn't become cocky, self-centered, or condescending. None of that stuff sometimes you can attribute to people who have become very successful in the media. He was a down-to-earth all the way, died peacefully in his sleep. I'm talking about Ramsey Lewis from out of Chicago. That's where you're from, too, isn't it, Lois? Well, anyway, he came to us 1935, left here in 2022, 87 years. 87 years of this man. He was a great composer and a great, great jazz pianist. And he's responsible for so many people listening to jazz today and enjoying it, especially since he had that hit record called The In Crowd, which encompassed jazz and pop feelings to a Ramsey Lewis with five honorary doctorate degrees and six decades of performing. He won three Grammys and seven gold records. He was named National Endowment of the Arts Jazz Master in 2007 which is the highest honor for a jazz musician. Sometimes I don't like using the term jazz because it has connotations that a lot of people disagree with it. They don't like the sound of it. You have to listen to him to see what we're talking about. He started at four years old taking piano lessons, and he contributed to the field by giving us more than 80 albums. He won the NAACP Image Award Outstanding Jazz Artist, and the trio he had that he started out that he became famous with broke up in 1966, although they did have reunions. Ramsey Lewis, not much I can say about him that's not being said all over the world in radio and television, even as I recollect or as I see him today. So having said all that and talking about Ramsey Lewis, why don't we uh, do something unique? I'm not going to share with you the in crowd. Everyone knows what the in crowd is and hang on, Sloopy. My interest in Ramsey Lewis came on the set playing blues. My choice in something to share with your listening audience right now is... uh, well, there's several blues things he has out, but this one in particular I find quite interesting because he encompasses all the feeling and gutsy feeling of the blues idiom in this tune called Blues for the Night Owl. So let's listen to Ramsey Lewis and share this one particular recording. You can go on YouTube or go to your record favorite source and get some Ramsey Lewis recordings. He's bound to be playing something you like, but this one is one I like, Blues for the Night Owl, Ramsey Lewis. Thank you, Lois. <laughs>
2: WABE's H. Johnson and our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured the great pianist Ramsey Lewis, who passed away in September. You can hear the full-length version of "Blues for the Night Owl" on our website, wabe.org/citylights. Catch H's Blues Classics show tonight and every Friday night beginning at 10 and do return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8. Coming up, we'll hear about Pop-Up Magazine's unique multimedia storytelling experience coming to the Buckhead Theatre, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on W.A.B.E. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Imagine a comedy show, play, concert, podcast, and film all wrapped into one night. That's how The creators of Pop-Up Magazine describe their live show. This storytelling experience comes to the Buckhead Theater on November 15th. The subject? Love stories. From blind dates to missed connections to lifelong companionships. Emerging storytellers and journalists present fascinating narratives accompanied by multimedia effects. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Haley Howell, senior producer of Pop-Up Magazine. Here, Haley talks about how the live magazine show got its
6: start. It started back in 2009 in San Francisco, Our current editor-in-chief, Doug McGray, started it with our co-founders, Derek Fagerstrom, Lauren Smith, and Evan Ratliff. And it was a bunch of friends who were in journalism. Doug was a magazine writer, and he had done some radio pieces, and it was born out of the realization that Oftentimes the writers hung out with writers and the photographers hung out with photographers and filmmakers hung out with other filmmakers. And the idea was to kind of get everybody together in the same room to share work in a multimedia way. And the idea of a live magazine was born Um, and it started out just as a hobby for some friends and then quickly grew. They started selling out big theaters in San Francisco and years later here we are <laughs> touring the country. Yeah.
1: You probably get asked a lot what is a pop-up live magazine? Would you describe what the presentation looks like for viewers?
6: So it's it's like reading your favorite print magazine but seeing it performed live on stage. All of our stories are brand new and true. And so when you're in the audience, you're looking at the stage and you're seeing somebody telling a story on one side of the stage, standing on stage telling a story. In the middle of the stage there's a big projection screen where we show all kinds of beautiful commissioned artwork. It could be animation, illustration, photography, documentary film. And then on the other side of the stage, there is a live band, the incredible Magic Magic Orchestra who we work with and they score all of the stories. So that is what a live magazine means. You're listening to a story, You're seeing artwork commissioned for that story. And you're listening to music that was composed just for that story.
1: How do you go about commissioning these pieces? I mean, what kind of contributors are you all searching for?
6: We're searching for all kinds of storytellers. We are talking to people whose work we admire. We're talking to people in all different moments of their career. And and ultimately what we're looking for are just surprising and compelling stories. And, and we do a lot of work to make sure that we've got a good mix of the kinds of stories in terms of the tone of the stories. We want funny and thoughtful and, and stories that'll make you cry and stories that'll make you laugh and stories you'll walk away having learned something new. And we're also looking for... different kinds of mediums so we work with magazine writers we work with radio producers documentary filmmakers photographers musicians comedians actors anybody who's got a story to tell and the stories in our show are mostly reported or outward looking and so in that way they kind of mimic this idea of of a live magazine
2: Mm.
1: so
6: you guys try to steer away from personal stories we do have personal stories in the show, but the majority of the stories in the show are reported or outward looking in some way, but that's not to say we don't do personal stories. Some of my favorite stories we've ever done have been like memoir or, or personal in some way, but oftentimes when we're assigning those kinds of stories, we're, we're asking ourselves like, what does this personal piece? Tell us um, about the world we live in on a larger mm-hmm. scale.
1: Mm. This year's focus is love stories. Why did you want to focus on love and different forms for
6: this show? This is our first themed show in three years. Typically, our shows don't have one specific theme tying them together. You know, the stories can be about anything, but we like to do theme shows every now and then and we've wanted to do a love show for a really long time it just seemed like a theme that we touch on often and we get pitched lots of love stories and you know we're kind of entering back into this space after not being able to tour for a while during the pandemic and so it kind of seemed like the perfect time to finally explore this love story theme that we've always been wanting to do.
1: So can you give us a preview of some of the types of stories that the presenters will touch upon in this issue?
6: We've got stories about all kinds of love, stories about first love and stories about blind dates, um, stories about heartbreak and, and misconnections and lifelong companionship and, and chosen family. One of the stories I'm most excited about is by a wonderful poet and storyteller, Sarah Kay who we've worked with before in our last theme show, which was escape themed. Sarah is going to be telling a very cinematic love story. It circles around a secret post-World War II relationship between her great uncle and one of the most famous actresses in Japan. And yeah, it's this story that like Sarah had grown up here. I mean, I don't want to give too much of it away, but it's this kind of like family lore, family mystery that Sarah had grown up hearing and then ultimately uncovers this like secret love story that is just incredible it feels like a movie um Ooh. well and, I'm intrigued <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm really excited about that one yeah we've also got Ben and Rhonda Partain who are local from Georgia they met in Douglasville when they were in college and when we decided to do a show of love stories we knew we had to bring back. This is one of our favorite love stories we've ever done. And Ben and Rhonda are a married couple who live in Georgia. And so we're really excited to bring them back. Their story is sweet and emotional. It's about they met on a blind date and Rhonda is blind and they fell in love. They got married and the story takes a turn when Ben discovers he's going blind himself. Um, And Rhonda teaches him how to move through the world. It's a really incredible story, and we love them so much, and I'm so excited to bring it back.
1: Mm, That sounds very sweet. Yeah. So, speaking of the pandemic and uh,
6: the fact that you guys haven't been able to tour in the last few years,
1: what has Pop Up Magazine been up to?
6: Yeah. So, when the pandemic hit, we had to pause touring, and we took that opportunity to experiment with our storytelling, and we learned a lot. We created a podcast. Called Field Guide about the outside world around us, it had a print companion that went along with it. We made physical storytelling objects. We made this thing called an issue in a box that we shipped out to people. And it was a magazine in a box. And we also did a, a all-outdoor storytelling installation that we called the sidewalk issue in San Francisco, LA, and New York, where you walked around a neighborhood and encountered. Different stories, in the form of like a newspaper stories written on menus in local restaurants, a film in a store in a storefront, an audio story. So yeah, we just kind of flexed our experimentation muscles and (laughs) and learned how to. We figured out what kinds of stories we could make if we weren't able to go into theaters. And ultimately, it was really fun time. Yeah, yeah.
1: Sounds like you guys got creative in difficult times. Yeah. Yeah, knew how to pivot. Yeah. I read that the upcoming Fall Tour of pop-up magazine will feature a slew of initiatives designed to make its performances accessible to the disabled community. What does that entail?
6: Yeah, it's something we've wanted to do more of. And with support from Google, we're able to, to make the in-theater show experience more accessible. So our show is going to feature ASL interpreters for the first time, um, open captioning, and audio descriptions. So we're really, really excited to be able to offer offer those features for the first time.
1: That's wonderful. What I think is so cool about Pop-Up Magazine is it's really just a full circle of storytelling, kind of going back to times before recording devices or being able to write stuff down. And what's neat about Pop-Up Magazine is nothing is recorded all of it has to be live. And it's just meant to be seen in that moment. How does this style of storytelling really get back to the basics of how people used to share stories?
6: Yeah, I love that about it, too. I mean, I think there's something kind of like all chemical and like intangible that happens when we're doing this ephemeral show that's like only exists for one night and isn't being recorded. And we ask audience members you know to put your phones down and just like be here and be present with us and and everyone does and and you can feel it in the theater it's like i said this kind of intangible thing where we're all gathered in one theater for the night you know we're all experiencing these like moving funny heartbreaking stories and all the twists and turns that come along with storytelling and after it's all over everyone goes into the lobby and has a drink and talks about it and The storytellers come out and everyone's just gathered there kind of like talking about what we all just experienced. And I think that people really respond to that. There's something about it that feels magical. Haley Howell, senior
2: producer for Pop-Up Magazine, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Their love story show is at the Buckhead Theatre on November 15th. More information about the live magazine show is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Atlanta has great musical talent, and we've been showcasing much of it this year in our Sounds Like ATL series. Now we invite you to experience the concerts on 90.1 WABE. Tonight we'll feature music of Atron, India's Sean, and Preska. That sounds like ATL tonight at 8 on 90.1, and you can watch the performance on WABE TV. Tonight at 11. Finally today, after nearly a half century on the road, the beloved Georgia band, the B-52s, will wrap up their touring career. The B-52s Farewell Tour, which began in Seattle in August, comes to the Fox Theater in Atlanta tonight through Sunday. The weirdly wonderful group consisting of Keith Strickland, Kate Pearson, Fred Schneider, and Cindy Wilson, say they are moving to the next phase in their lives, which they hope will include the eventual release of a documentary film. From their 1989 release, Cosmic Thing, this is Rome from the no longer roaming B-52s. Been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., comedian Hurry Kundabolu stops by ahead of his upcoming performance at Dad's Garage. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Kanavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.